Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A living history production. I'm Peter Hart and I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. And welcome to the podcast. Hello. I'm Gary Bain and I'm at Shea Hart once more and I'm joined by Peter Hart. Good afternoon, Peter. Good afternoon, Gary. Now, tonight, tonight, today, this evening, uh, we're going to be doing another in our long-running saga. The Battle of Shetland. And this one, rather imaginatively, is called Sheer Manoeuvres in Desperation. Desperation. Wow. Now, let's take. Where are we? Well, we've uh, we've 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 got to the point where uh, uh, the race to the north was over. The Jellicoe had come steaming down from the north, and he he'd uh, deployed into uh, a battle line. Uh, during the kerfuffle, we'd been through all the excitement, the sinking of the war of the. Uh, Defence, the damaging of the warrior, the circling of the war spire, with the sinking of the invincible. And how would you say the sinking, the things like the invincible, the damage to the warrior, the sinking of the defence, how do you think that had changed things? Had, had it actually made a difference? Well, it didn't actually change the basic tactical morass Ooh. within which the high seas fleet was now sinking. The good word, sinking, Gary. Mm. As the Grand Fleet columns evolved into a fully-fledged battle line, their shells began to crash down on the German battlecruisers and the leading dreadnoughts of the 3rd Battle Squadron. The Koenig, in particular, was hard hit by the Iron Duke and the Monarch. Yeah, it was. Uh, the, Iron, the Iron Duke, well, six or seven hits with a 13.5-inch gun. And it serious damage by the Koenig and the Markgraf. Oh, you're not correcting me. Right. <laughs> uh, there is a problem. Though. What might that problem be? Well, the slow, slowly failing light, coupled with the prevalent mists and rolling smoke. What caused those rolling smoke clouds, Gary? Well, the ships. The guns, yeah. And the, and the smoky things. Funnels. Funnels. <laughs> uh, that rendered visibility difficult for both sides. Now, aboard the Frederick de Grossa. I didn't know Frederick was a grocer. He was, yes. Shear could see little of the British other than the encircling flashes of their guns. Worrying for him then? Oh, of course, yeah. Now it was his turn to make the decision that would decide the future of his command. Just like Jellicoe had in his deployment, yeah? 
How could he withdraw the high seas fleet from the fatal position into which they had been drawn? And you're going to tell us, because you, using that voice acting that's made you the legend, (laughs) you are popular with our listeners everywhere, are going to bring your skills to portraying Admiral Reinhard Scheer on the uh, SMS Friedrich der Grosse. I could see nothing of our cruisers, which were still farther forward. Owing to the turning aside that was inevitable in drawing nearer, they found themselves between the fire of both lines. For this reason, I decided to turn our line and bring it on to an opposite course. Otherwise, an awkward situation would have arisen round the pivot which the enemy line by degrees was passing, as long-distance shots from the enemy would certainly have hit our rear ships. As regards the effectiveness of the artillery, the enemy was far more favourably situated, as our ships stood out against the clear western horizon, whereas his own ships were hidden by the smoke and mist of the battle. A running artillery fight on a southerly course would therefore not have been advantageous to us. Now, uh, perhaps you'd take us through the manoeuvre that was selected and ordered by uh, Scheer. Well, well, how would you describe it in German, please? Uh, you mean the Gefechtwendung nach Sturbord, or Battle Turn to Starboard. And you just didn't want to say that, I did you? No. Uh, it had been... Uh, it, 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 they practised this. Uh, and it it was to it was designed to rescue the high seas fleet just from such a situation. Uh, <coughs> how would you well handbrake turn? Yeah, the naval equivalent. Yeah. Now yeah. each ship in the German line would turn individually in a fast, decisive manoeuvre, demanding a high degree of seamanship. Yep, the ship at the rear of the line, Gaz, would Gaz. turn first, putting a helm over, and then each successive ship would turn to follow. It, it in sequence, uh, it's it's a, sort of rippling along the line towards the van. So the ship in front would turn last. Uh, now, I, what you were just saying, Ashir, is a load of bollocks, really. His sole idea, in my opinion, and a lot of other people's opinion, was to reverse course to escape from the trap he'd run into that Jellico had sprung upon him. Uh, so. Uh, so what, dear? So so what happens with the battlecruisers? So that's the battleships. What are the battlecruisers doing it? Well, they'd they'd received a protracted pummeling, and they were in such a state that all semblance of order had disappeared as they sought to evade the torrents of shells that plagued them. The Lutzov was so badly battered, well down at the bow, that to steam at any more than fifteen knots would be to invite disaster through the collapse of her straining internal bulkheads. Now you've got straining internal bulkheads, haven't you, Gary? Yes, and I can't do 15 knots because at that speed she could no longer lead the line and she therefore pulled out of the line altogether to the southwest, trying to evade her enemies as best she could. So just going, just getting out of it, really. So now that means that Hipper, that's his ship. It's yep. the flagship of the, uh, the, the, the cruise squad, the battle cruise squad. So he's got to shift his flag. So he gets on board a destroyer, G39, a, a, a good name, that. It, it really conjures up the spirit of it. Uh, and hands over effective command of his battlecruisers to Captain Hartog of the Derflinger. Uh, Derflinger, what state was she in? Well, she, she herself was in a, a, a dire state. From now, the- there, woof, that's all I can say. Woof, woof, woof. Yeah. 
Well, from the British perspective, the high seas fleet simply disappeared in the confusion of the misty conditions. No one realised for a while what had happened. And that's partly because there's no turning in front of them. What happens is they just could see the last ship turn, but that's the last ship. It's brilliant. And that actually none of them really see what's happening. Now, um, uh, what else does Shear do which actually fulfils most of, uh, of Jellicoe's fears? Well, at the same moment they executed their battle turn away, the Germans launched a covering destroyer attack, which is something that Jellicoe was particularly concerned about. And perversely, or, or whatever you want to say, it 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 it, it goes it goes wrong. So the, the, the manoeuvre goes right, but the destroyer attack goes wrong. Well, because in the confusion of the moment, it was recalled and only a few torpedoes were fired towards the British line to no real effect. They'd missed an excellent opportunity of causing real damage. They do do something now. Yeah, the German destroyers did succeed in laying a smoke screen that masked the retirement of the high seas fleet. Now, picture the scene on the Iron Duke. I can see you picturing it now. I am ah, picturing it. You've got your hat on. It's a bit on like it. a postcard picture. You've got, yes. You've got your hat on at a jaunty angle again. Um, on, but, so there on the Iron Duke, what could, what could Jellicoe see? Uh, well, a bugger all is the answer. And he's, he's again in a quandary. Uh, as, as, uh, all along the line, he's so carefully put, the guns are falling silent because the targets are just disappearing. Uh, and it's becoming apparent that Germans are not going to oblige the British by uh, uh, engaging in a sort of duel to the death on a parallel course. Uh, well, certainly not if they could avoid it. So what does he have to do? He's got to do something to regain contact. Well, Jellicoe's since been criticised for not turning more sharply to the southwestwards to pursue Shear. However, this is unfounded and overlooks a number of critical factors, and we'll go through them, Pete. You start. Yeah, well, Jellicoe, we, early on, that's why we go back right to 1914 with these, this series of podcasts. In 1914, he'd made it absolutely bloody clear he was not going to for, follow a retreating force because he was afeard, I'd be afeard, of mined submarines and coordinated destroyer attacks. He'd made that absolutely clear in 14. So if, if you're going to tell him off for that, he should have been sacked And he put then. that in writing to the Admiral. Really. He should have been sacked then, if that... So, right, what's, what else have we got? Well, in addition, Jellicoe believed that most, if not all, of the German destroyers had the capacity to carry mines. Well, well while again, this was not the case, their ability to launch a mass torpedo attack from behind a smoke screen, that was real enough. And that's exactly, we just discussed it. That's what they tried to do. Now, uh, through his skill, he'd managed to uh, cross the T. Uh, he'd put his ships in a dominating uh, position. But, but what, 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 what was he going to do now? Well, he's simultaneously trying to secure at the same time the best possible light for his gunners. Yeah. So what he does is he turns south. Okay? So they've, they've turned away. He turns south. And that means... By turning south, he's gone in a way round them and down the Germany side. So uh, he's placed himself across the line of their homewards retreat. Yep. And what else has he done? Well, once more, he's maximised the best available light for his fleet as the sun sets in the... Now, these were considerable achievements within the no-risk framework that governed him. Now, how, how, could I, how best can we illustrate the risks that... Uh, that he was afeard of. Well, to illustrate, a single torpedo, which was probably fired by the stranded V-48, uh, struck the Marlborough 
a grievous blow at 1857. It was the first blow struck against the main body of the British dreadnoughts. And this is what midshipman Angus Nicholl aboard HMS Marlborough says. After we'd been firing for 10 or 12 minutes, there was a sudden tremendous shock. I was almost thrown off my feet and the shells which were halfway into the loading cages were upended and jammed against the tops of the cages. For a second there was a tense silence. Then the voice of Jimmy Green. There guys more Flipping, I wonder if he said flipping, eggs! With a shout of laughter, we set about writing the shells to keep the guns in action. Yeah, so nothing much important there, uh, except that actually British dreadnoughts don't like being torpedoed. They've got a lot of space down below, and uh, the ship starts to list. What do they have to do? They, well, they've got to avoid panicking, but they don't know whether it's going to sink or not. And a lot of ships, hitherto in the war, if they've been hit by even a single torpedo, had sunk uh, and uh, it, this the Marlborough incident is really it's a close run thing the bloody thing nearly sinks but it does make it back to port but it shows you Gary it shows you what Jellicoe was frightened of or oh, frightened's the wrong word concerned concerned about. yeah now as the Grand Fleet settled on a southerly course Shear still deeply aware of his predicament and conscious that night was drawing in took a decision that has variously been regarded as bold reckless or downright stupid, depending on the perspective of the commentator. Yeah, I'm in the uh, reckless camp, I think. I don't think I'd call him stupid. Uh, 1855, he orders a second... Now, what was that? A Gefechtsvendung. Or battle turn. And that, he wants to bring it onto an easterly course, which will head them directly towards the centre of Jellicoe's line. Now, (laughs) he doesn't mean to do that at all. He's probably... He says... And I think we should give his uh, motives respect. He says he was going to arrest the marooned Wiesbaden. Uh, uh, now, some contend that Shear was just aiming to pass to the north of the ground fleet. Remember that? Sailing to the south. So in turning back, he's trying to get round them to the, to the north of them. Um, I think you have to give the fact that what he says he was going back to the rescue of the... I think you have to give it respect because the, the German Navy doesn't just leave people behind. Uh... Now, after the second German battle turn, the Koenig was once again leading the German dreadnought line on an easterly course. The battle cruisers followed the Der Flinger to the north and then swung across to take up their position in the van. Now, so the result of this was at 1910... <laughs> the Grand Fleet gets a second bite of the cherry. <laughs> it's out of the mist and the murk and everything. They see the German destroyers, battlecruisers and leading dreadnoughts all coming out of the smoke, the mist, the, the sunset haze. They're coming straight for them. Again, once again, Jellicoe has crossed their T. Wow. Although the visibility was much better for the British than for the Germans, it was a variable and there were still several ships dogged by drifting smoke or the frustrations engendered by localised sea mists. Yeah, in this case, so that meant there's no systematic distribution of fire amongst the Grand Fleet. Each ship just shoots at whatever it fancies, uh, whatever it can best see. Uh, there's no central direction of, of the fire. Now, so the, the, the High Seas Fleet hoves into view of the British at 1910. And, and what does the Brit- what happens? Well, the British fire doubles and redoubles. From his position in the middle of the line aboard the Frederick the Grocer, Shear remained largely unaware of what was actually happening directly ahead of him. And generally, the Germans could see next to nothing except the wall of gun flashes. 
Right, well, I've got a little quote that illustrates it, and this is from Obermatrose. Obermatrose, Obermatrose. Albert Blessman. Obermatrose just means semen. Oh, it sounds so dramatic. Obermatrose, Obermatrose, Obermatrose. Uh, SMS, uh, he's on the Posen, first battle squadron. And he says this, Suddenly, we were practically surrounded. We were being fired at from every side. The entire British fleet had suddenly appeared. We were in a tight corner, and I said to myself, You will be a lucky fellow if you get out of this. Where was he from exactly? Germany. Now, eventually, she realised that he'd made a disastrous mistake. A man of quick decisions... Hang on. Man of quick decisions. Carry on. When did... 1913... How many minutes is that after he's been spotted? Three. Not bad, eh? He issued an amazing order by signal flag. Schlachtkreuzer, run an der Fiend, wohl einsetzen. Well, I can translate that because I've been looking that up and it means battle cruisers at the enemy. Attack, give it everything. You didn't Attack know. everything. Attack Lano Hawker. Lano Hawker. 24 squadron. Now, Shear intended to use this desperate measure to buy him time to cover another Gefex Vendong. Gefex Vendong. Of the main dreadnought fleet. Can we just say turning? Um, to escape onto a westerly course. So they're turning back. What, what, if you go to the west, what do you get to? Uh, the, 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 the sun. England. England. <laughs> Not if you're in Scotland. No. Now, the standard tactic of a torpedo attack launched by the destroyers would, in these circumstances, not be enough. No. So, uh, it's just, they're too close. It's too serious. He's got to, if the the dreadnoughts are going to get away, he thinks that he's got to send the battlecruisers in a a sort of death ride. Because uh, that would dilute the t- British fire and allow their destroyers to get into decisive torpedo range. So he orders the battle turn to starboard around, at about 1918, as soon as the battlecruisers and the destroyers had commenced their attack. This is, drama- this is drama, high drama on the high seas for the high seas fleet. Did you not want to say Gefexvendung then? No, I didn't. Now, sheer subordinate admirals and captains showed immense skill and gratifying powers of independent thought. They evaded many collisions by a hair's breadth as the huge ships whirled round at highest speed. But they didn't get through unscathed. No, they didn't. Uh, Give us some examples of what happened. You again don't want to say this, do you? The Grosser Kurfürst was hit by a veritable deluge of shells, many of them 15-inch monsters from the Barham and Valiant as she was forced to move out a line in company with the struggling Markgraf, which was still hampered by the damage to a port engine. Now, um, the, 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 number, the first scouting group, the, the battle crews, they don't shirk for, from, well, you could describe it as a blood sacrifice that Shear was demanding. The badly damaged battle cruisers turned to starboard to take up a southerly course for what must, they must have thought this was the last great service to the fatherland. They're basically acting as a gigantic magnet for the British fire, drawing it away from the main battle line of of dreadnoughts as it turned behind them. Uh, And also, of course, from the destroyers. Uh, Does the plan work? Yeah, certainly. It's been estimated that 18 British dreadnoughts fired at the four German battlecruisers, while just seven fired at the German dreadnoughts. The Derfling are leading the line 
she suffered the worst. Yeah, shell after shell, 14, they estimate. I'm always dubious about these estimates. Plunged down onto the smoking remnants of, well, uh, our friend, uh, Commander Georges von Haas. He's a gunnery officer, uh, and it's his proud, once proud warship. What was the damage like, would you say? Well, just incredible, and her continued survival provided convincing testimony to the skill with which she'd been designed and built. No No no, British battlecruiser could have survived the punishment that was meted out to her in just a few minutes, which must have seemed like hours to her beleaguered crew. Can I just say there was uh, nothing wrong with hippers, bloody ships. Oh, I see what you've done there. Ah, See that? That's an earlier reference. And this is Commander George von Haas of SMS Derflinger. Now hit after hit shook the ship. The enemy had got our range excellently. I felt a clutch at my heart when I thought of what the conditions must be in the interior of the ship. So far we in the armoured tower had come off very well. My train of thought was sharply interrupted. Suddenly we seemed to hear the crack of doom. A terrific roar, a tremendous explosion and then darkness in which we felt a colossal blow. The whole conning tower seemed to be hurled into the air as though by the hands of some portentous giant and then to flutter trembling into its former position. A heavy shell had struck the fore control about 50 centimetres in front of me. The shell exploded but failed to pierce the thick armour which it had struck at an unfavourable angle though huge pieces had been torn out. Poisonous greenish-yellow gases poured through the apertures into our control. I called out, down gas masks! And immediately every man pulled down his gas mask over his face. I went on controlling the fire with my gas mask on, which made it very difficult to make myself understood. But the gases soon dissipated, and we cautiously took off the masks. We assured ourselves that the gunnery apparatus was still in order. Nothing had been disturbed. Even the delicate mechanism of the sighting apparatus was, strange to say, still in order. Some splinters had been flung through the aperture onto the bridge, where they had wounded several men, including the navigating officer. The terrific blow had burst open the heavy armoured door of the tower, which now stood wide open. Two men strove in vain to force it back, but it was jammed too tight. Then came unexpected assistance. Once more we heard a colossal roar and crash with the noise of a bursting thunderbolt, a 38-centimetre shell exploded under the bridge. Whole sheets of the deck were hurled through the air. A tremendous concussion threw overboard everything that could be moved. Amongst other things, the chart house with all the charts and other gear, and, last but not least, my good overcoat, which I had left hanging in the chart house, vanished from the scene forever. And one extraordinary thing happened. The terrific concussion of the bursting 38-centimetre shell shut the armoured door of the fore control. A polite race, the English. They had opened the door for us, and it was they who shut it again. I wonder if they meant to. In any case, it amused us a good deal. (laughs) I looked towards the enemy through my periscope. Their salvos were still bursting around us, but we could scarcely see anything of the enemy, who were disposed in a great semicircle round us. All we could see was the great reddish-gold flames spurting from the guns. The ship's hulls we saw but rarely. I had the range of the flames measured. That was the only possible means of establishing the enemy's range. Without much hope of hurting the enemy, I ordered the two forward turrets to fire salvo after salvo. 
I could feel that our fire soothed the nerves of the ship's company. If we had ceased fire at this time, the whole ship's company would have been overwhelmed by despair, for everyone would have thought, a few minutes more and it will all be up. But so long as we were still firing, things could not be so bad. Now, it's in such a manner that the Germans returned far as best they could, but looking to the east, they were severely hampered by dreadful visibility. And at this point, we'll take a short break. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. The Von der Tan had been reduced to the status of a decoy within a decoy squadron, as every one of her guns was by then out of action. Her sole remaining role was to act as a target, sucking in shells that might otherwise be directed at her sisters, who still retained the use of their main armament. But she Ooh. stuck it out and escaped reasonably lightly in the circumstances. Yeah, and just one more shell, hit, scored a hit. <laughs> that smashed into her conning tower. Uh, and uh, the, the splinters killed or wounded all of the occupants. So they're still suffering. Um I think that, 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 it was a long quote, but I think it was worth it for Van Haas. And I know it's a stupid accent. Uh, no, no. <laughs> but, but I think, I think that was just very evocative and it told us just what was happening. It gave you an idea. I thought it was brilliant. Wonderfully read by you, Gary. Stupid accent. Oh, in a stupid accent, obvs. <laughs> now, so where are we? 1915, the German destroyers, they go off on a, their own desperate charge. Um, uh, but a lot of them weren't in the right place. They'd be, I mean, if you think about it, the line's been turning backwards and forwards, and they, they couldn't keep... They, a lot of them are in the wrong place. And also, what else 
Had well, to a lot several had already expended some of their torpedoes. Uh, the massed attack of Shears' dreams and Jellicoe's nightmares, thus never materialised. No, but they did attack and they, they, they got a lot of attention. What would they get the attention from? Would it be from the main armament? No, There's a bit from, of a clue there, isn't no. there? No, so it's the British secondary and some of main armaments that immediately blazed out and soon scored hits on three of their diminutive foes. I, th- I think I think that the courage of the German, the, the, the high seas fleet, those sailors, the, those German sailors, they're, they're, they're magnificent. Uh, and and th- those destroyers, they create enough havoc to, to allow the German battlecruisers to be released from their death ride. Uh, so th- 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 they don't have to sacrifice themselves. There's enough chaos going on. The battlecruisers can turn away. And they do that at 1920. Uh, and, and they turn away from the Grand Fleet to head first west, southwest, before swinging around to follow the retreat of the High Seas Fleet to the west. So if you think about it, they're heading to England. Yes, I knew that. Or Scotland. Now, the German destroyer attack triggered the standard naval response from Jellicoe. At 19.22, he ordered... Did you drop something on your foot then? No, I just looked to see what it was and pulled a muscle in me back. All right, I'm going to call you Klopp. At 19.22, Jellicoe ordered the 4th Light Cruiser Squadron into the attack to counter the German thrust and at the same time issued orders for his dreadnoughts to turn away in two separate two-point turns by divisions. Yeah, basically, he's turning in the opposite direction to what the destro- the, uh, the torpedoes are going. So he's, he's basically turned right round, he's going the other way. Uh, why did he do that? Well, it greatly reduced the chance of torpedoes hitting his precious but strangely vulnerable giants. Yeah, because they're, they're, instead of being broadside on, they're showing their arse, to use a very technical stern. Um, and also, they are heading at their own speed of 20 knots, which massively, relatively reduces the speed of the torpedoes. Um, uh, it, it's, um, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's the sensible move to do. And what, so what course are they going? They're going well, they're to following, Germany. Yeah, well, they're following a south-southeast course with the obvious consequence that they're actually sailing almost directly away from the high seas. Who's going to England? So. <laughs> But as, confused. <laughs> but as far as he was concerned, to, uh, torpedo attacks on a large scale meant a mathematical certainty that ships in close order line ahead would be hit. And they'd done tests on this. They, they'd worked, they'd had mathematicians, they'd worked it all out. If you sail in a straight line, you will get hit by torpedoes. So Jellicoe was aware that he could have turned towards rather than away from the torpedoes. But, as you say, having analysed the risks as he saw it, he once again played safe with the fleet that guaranteed the naval supremacy of the British Empire. Yeah, because if you turn towards, yes, you're showing the bow instead of the CERN, so there's a smaller target, but you're doubling the speed of the torpedoes as well, so you've got less chance to manoeuvre away. Um, The threat of hundreds of torpedoes, though, it doesn't materialise, does it? Nope, just 31 torpedoes were fired at the British dreadnoughts, of which only 21 seem to have actually passed through the line. Any close shaves? Oh, yeah, there were some close shaves, which indicate that Jellicoe was probably right to assume there would have been losses if they'd not turned away from the threat. Yeah, I remember once the the then first sea lord said how pulsinaminous, he probably could pronounce it properly, Jellicoe was, and how he should have turned towards. Uh, The man was a bloody idiot. Jellicoe did the right thing. It's not... It, 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 war isn't a joke, and you couldn't mess about with these things. We know what happened to the Marlborough. It could have happened to four or five of, our Brit- of the British dreadnoughts. Uh, I think he did. I, I think he did well. Um, so uh, um, 
He's we, clearly relieved because yeah. he survived the destroyer attack unscathed. So what does he do then? What's he, what's, well, he returns his attention to the question of closing again with the high seas fleet, which he discovered had by then long disappeared off to the west. Uh, well, there's a, we return to an earlier theme. Who's let him down? Well, once more, he's been let down by elements of the fleet who'd seen what was happening, but wrongly assumed that anything they could see was visible to everyone. Thus, although many of his subordinate commanders actually saw the German battle turn, none reported it to the only man that really mattered. Jellicoe. Absolutely. So, 1935, Jellicoe turns his divisions back towards where the high seas fleet had been. Uh, and be- he begins manoeuvring to form a single line. If you look at this and on the maps, it's it's quite pretty because it's sort of shapes. It forms five or six col- six columns, then back to one, and then it's it's quite very complex. Um, now, does he get any signals? Yeah, he received signals from both Beatty and Goodenough that indicated the Germans were to the west, although both were flawed in their details. Yeah, you've got to remember that, that we've talked about the navigational problems, dead reckoning, etc., etc., in, in, on a day like this. It, um, yeah, but if you take them together, they confirm the general position of IC's fleet, and at 1940, Jellicoe ordered the Grand Fleet onto a southwesterly course. So for the moment, at least, the high seas fleets escaped. Yeah, but the price has been very high. The battle cruisers, in particular, had really... I mean, the words battered to buggery no longer have any real meaning other than that they're just in a dreadful state. And what's the worst of all? Well, you can guess what the worst of all was. Well, it's Hipper's former flagship, the Lutzov, which was in a truly dreadful state, with water lapping over her lower decks in an ominous fashion. I'd say that was an ominous fashion. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if you're ever on a ferry, Gary, and there's yes. water lapping over the decks, you ought to start worrying. Yeah. Now, the damage wasn't confined to the German battle cruisers. The horrors of war were becoming excruciatingly apparent, even aboard the German dreadnoughts. And this is signalman Franz Motzler of SMS Koenig. I'm looking forward to this. It was a job. It was my job to help a dying signalman from Akrosnes, and I told him that we all might have to face it one day, as we were all in great danger. During an interval in the battle, I had to take a message to the lower deck, which meant I had to pass the kitchen. I saw a dead cook with his head and arms in the coffee kettle. Several seamen were so thirsty that they were pouring coffee from the same kettle into their cups. Who worries about dead men in cases like these? That's a pretty awful quote. Ah, but very similar to Laugh or Cry, it's soup. Yeah. Very similar. Very similar. Uh, You might think we were insensitive to do accents on that one, and that's possibly because we didn't spot what was coming. Uh, We apologise if it's upsetting. But but, um, that is a, a remarkable quote, really. Yeah, I'm not sure I'd like to be told by saying where it's going to come to all of us. You know, I'd like some sort of lie to me and say, oh, you can be all right, chum. Yeah. Now, uh, respite for the high seas fleet's only uh, temporary. They've they've eluded Jellicoe for the moment, but uh, what that the, their actual situation hasn't changed. Oh. Uh, because although they've struck several painful blows to the British, they're, they're still seriously outnumbered and they're still at severe risk if a general fleet action's renewed. And there's another point, which we've now hammering on a bit, but the Grand Fleet now square, is now squarely between themselves and Wiesbaden or any home port. It's the, the, the Grand Fleet is between them and Germany. 
and by hook or by crook, they've got to get past them. But the question was how and when. So in 1945, Shear, rather than sail even further west, hence fell further, much further to, from Sanctuary, he changed his course to the south. Um, so this, this, funnily enough, leaves the British and the Germans on slowly converging co- courses. They're both heading basically south, but slightly towards each other. Uh, now, as the Shear changes course, the British uh, battlecruisers, they're still six miles in front of the leading division of the Grand Fleet. And uh, two minutes later, 1947, Beatty sends a remarkable signal to Jellicoe, which just shows what a complete arse he was. So I'd like you to read this. Well, yeah, OK. Submit van of battleships follow battlecruisers. We can then cut off whole of enemy's fleet. I think I think it's regrettable that his phrasing is so unclear. It's also regrettable that he's... I mean, he doesn't really know what's happening, and it's just, it's just bullshit. Well, yeah, I think the implications are, are dramatic, but it seems that at that point, he'd neither the German battlecruisers nor the ICS fleet in sight, although he thought he knew where they were. Yeah, yeah. Now, the intention was for the battlecruisers to lead the search to the west for the high seas fleet. But sensibly, in the light of his earlier experiences that day, he wanted the heavy duty support that could only be offered by the leading divisions of dreadnoughts. Learn one lesson then. I mean, one thing about Beatty is he's not particularly stupid, is he? I mean, he learned from his lessons. It takes a while. I don't think any of them are particularly stupid. No, 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 no. Now, Beatty was rightly concerned that in the declining visibility, he might run into a little more than he could cope with. Which is absolutely sensible. Uh, so the... The, the wording of the signature is an unfortunate and you know, interpretations <coughs> have varied from a, a sort of heroic call to arms or a desperate attempt to chivy a reluctant superior into action. Well, it's definitely, it, 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 it oozes bluster and it's got, it's got an obvious eye to posterity, I think. It's not Beatty's finest hour. Um, well, whatever the true intent, it's generally accepted that by the time Jellicoe received the message on the Iron Duke, He'd already decided to order the Grand Fleet to turn by divisions to a westerly course. So he duly informed uh, Beatty of the new course and in turn ordered Vice Admiral Sir Martin Jerram of the 2nd Battle Squadron to follow Beatty, essentially as requested. Yeah, unfortunately, and this is the point, Jerram was not at the time uh, in sight of either Beatty or the High Seas Fleet, so he just bloody ignores it. Uh, he, he just carries on in the same westerly course as the rest of the fleet. So uh, it, it, it's, quite in, enter, it's quite interesting, that whole incident. It does give a little unpleasant light into Beatty's character, I think. Uh, so once again, the two fleets, they're basically on a collision course, uh, the British dreadnoughts, I'm, I'm afraid they're once again in six columns, not a single line. They're going directly west. Where's Beatty? He's some six miles ahead of them, and he's steering to the southwest. Where's the high seas fleet? Well, that was set on a southerly course, nearest to the Grand Fleet with the four battlecruisers, then the dreadnoughts with the first squadron leading the third squadron with a considerable gap between the squadrons. And then... We've not really mentioned them a lot, but the pre-dreadnoughts of, of Second Squadron, they're further to the west still and slightly more to the south. Uh, the crippled Lutzow, Zov, Zov. Well, she and her escort of destroyers were heading west with the sole intention of survival. Not, nothing else in mind, yeah. Now, Shear, is he aware that the British are following him? Uh, no. 
Excellent. Thank you. You are beginning to grasp this battle in, in some complete detail. I'm, I'm impressed. Um, yeah, no, he's not. And he's still intent on organising renewed destroyer attacks once his somewhat scattered flotillas have been reformed to the west of, it, of the main force. That's what they're, they're trying to sort themselves out. Uh, then, then there's another clash. Uh, this is getting dark by now, isn't it? Uh, around 2026. What happens then? The British cruiser screen encountered the main German battle line moving south, but uncoordinated attempts to launch a torpedo attack were swamped with fire. HMS Calliope was in the thick of it, and this is signaller Albert Nicholas on board HMS Calliope. Nicholas, Nicholas. Shrapnel was falling all about us. The guns just below the, the gun just below the bridge was struck, and the whole gun's crew was killed, except for one, the gun layer, who lay unconscious next to his gun. Another shell caught the port after gun, and that gun suffered the same fate. Our sergeant of marines was a gun layer, and all that remained of him was a hand, a piece of leg, and his brains were splattered on the gun shield. This was caused through a fall of shrapnel, uh, uh, exploding the lidite shell already in the loading tray, and the breech of the gun was blown to pieces. Directly in line with this gun and the line of fire was the ice house, and that was riddled. A stoker standing nearby had the top of his head blown off and both of his legs. The sight was awful. That's just terrible. gruesome. Terrible. Splintered metal screamed through the air and splattered across the decks of the Calliope. But despite the damage and casualties that were sustained, the torpedo attack was continued. Brave men. As soon as the torpedo was launched, the Calliope then turned and tried to make her escape. And once more, you're going to tell us what uh, Signal Albert Nicholas says. Our speed and the Commodore's seamanship was saving us. We were also getting out of range of their guns. But at what price? Nine killed and 29 seriously wounded, several others with smaller injuries, but I thank God that we had escaped and trust that we will never be in such a tight corner again. When we came to reckon up, our little action only lasted seven minutes. But what a seven minutes it was. An eternity. Never in all my life shall I forget the sight, the whizzing of the shells, the falling of stays and halyards, the sight of the dead and the flesh and blood scattered around about their guns. These cruiser engagements attracted Beatty's attention. He turned to a westerly course paralleling the Grand Fleet at 2015, but now changed to west-southwest. Now, almost immediately, the British battlecruisers sight the German battlecruisers uh, and the head of the first battle squadron, that's the German dreadnoughts. They opened up on each other exactly at the official time of sunset, uh, which is 2019 for that day, which means what, Gary? It's getting dark. That's it. The German battlecruisers were not really in a fit state to resume the battle. They'd suffered too much in the last three hours. Many of their guns were out of action, fires still blazed below decks, and they were listing drunkenly from the effects of hits below the waterline. Mm, I know that feeling. Uh, in contrast, though, the Lion, the Princess Royal and, and, and Tiger, they'd suffered damage, and they had but their fighting potential was only partially restricted. Uh, and and, and then, then again, if you think about it, the New Zealand, the Indomitable and the Inflexible were almost untouched. Uh, so when the British guns open up, more hits are scored on the poor old uh, German battlecruisers, in particular which two? Seidlitz and Derflinger. Oh, that's our friend again, yeah. Uh, then, then rescue came. And who was that from? Well, it's the most unlikely of quarters. The pre-dreadnoughts of the German second battle squadron, they appeared from the gloom. And this is Commander George von Haas aboard SMS Derflinger. Suddenly, the enemy saw seven big ships heading for them at top speed. 
At the same time, the unwearying destroyers again pressed home the attack. That was too much for them. The enemy turned about and disappeared in the twilight. We did not want to see any more of them. I wonder if they would have turned about had they known what kind of ships these were. They were the famous German five-minute ships, to settle which the Englishman could not spare more than five minutes, but bravely withdrew. He means, I mean, they were supposed to only take five minutes to sink a pre-dreadnought. Yeah. But he's, he's being a bit of an arse here, isn't he? Well, yeah, he's being mischievous. He's uh, misleading the questions and, and, and he's, he's questioning the courage of Beatty's ships quite unfairly. Actually, the German battlecruisers themselves turned sharply to the west to evade the fire. Of so he's ships. lying. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's Beatty's, wrong. Beatty's battlecruisers open fire on the pre-dreadnoughts and uh, they score hits. So which ships did they hit, Gary? <laughs> the Schleswig-Holstein, uh, the Pommern and the Schliessen, before they turn away. Yeah, the, uh, the, I make clear, the, uh, the Germans turn away. Um, now, at considerable risk, this is, again, this is brave uh, by these Germans in their pre-dreadnoughts. Uh, they've covered the withdrawal of their comrades in the battlecruisers. Uh, Beatty, does he follow them when they turn away? No, because he's unsure what was happening as the light was fading and he wasn't willing to venture venture too far out on a limb. He'd been successful in beating back the bulk of the high seas fleet to the west once more. So they're still between the 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 the, the high the Grand Fleet is between the Germans, High Seas Fleet, and home. Now overall situation remains the same. Yep, that's just what I've said. Throughout these engagements, Jellicoe was once again left in the literal and metaphorical darkness. But remember that talk where we had lots of metaphoricals? Those reports that did come in were confusing and often lacked the necessary details of bearings and positions. Yeah, I think most of, many, most, I don't know, Jellicoe's officers no longer understood what was going on. <laughs> and, and they, what do they do? Do they, do they take responsible? Do they grasp it? No, they, they, they eschew responsibility for making any sort of decision. They didn't want to make a mistake and therefore prefer, preferred to do nothing rather than risk their reputations through error. I bet some of your subordinates were like that at Transport for London. I was like that. <laughs> now, in 2028, Jellicoe altered course by divisions from west to southwest, thus in effect forming a single line once again, because he's determined, as you've said, to stay across the German line of retreat. Uh, now, now, now I think I think the best thing to do is to to to, to the, the Germans also fall. They don't deflect to the south to the west for long. They also fall into a southerly course. So 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 both fleets are now heading essentially to the south. And would you not agree with me that the main fleet action is over? Yeah, I'd agree with you. Yeah. Uh, now uh, the darkness fell. Uh, it's a short summer night. It's uh, it's thirty uh, first of May. Oh, well, it's coming into the first of June. Uh, who do you think has the whip hand? Uh, I think I think Jellicoe probably on yeah. balance. Yeah, the British had suffered severe casualties in this phase. Um, they'd suffered earlier in the battle cruiser action, but they'd suffered in this phase the loss of the Invincible and the and Defence. That was in the sort of frenetic minutes when they first collided, but. Then Jellicoe had deployed his battle fleet, and since then the Germans had entirely failed to isolate and destroy a significant portion of the Grand Fleet. That's what they'd intended. Throughout the battle, they'd failed to do that, hadn't they? 
Yeah, throughout the whole phase, Jellicoe had controlled the course of the battle. His brilliant deployment and subsequent call manoeuvring across the German Tee on two separate occasions. Yeah. Now, although he'd lost some of the initiative by turning away in the face of the German destroyer attack, he'd continued to direct the overall shape of the battle, despite all the problems of command and control endemic in the handling of a large fleet in poor visibility. And during the brief fleet battle fleet engagements, his ships had really battered the, the battlecruisers and leading dreadnoughts of the high seas fleet. Several of Shear's ships were so severely damaged that they were in considerable danger of sinking. And he could not afford to delay too long getting back to harbour. Um, yeah, yeah, but for the British, the battle remained unresolved. Jellicoe had suffered the loss of three battlecruisers, but they did not materially affect the overall superiority of his fleet, especially as the German battlecruisers had been reduced to a shadow of their former fighting strength. The vast majority of Jellicoe's Grand Fleet, therefore, was unscathed, and as night fell, it's ready for action. So what questions do we ask here? What do you want to know? What's your, your remaining questions? Could Jellicoe convert the undoubted positional advantage he'd secured blocking the German route home into a convincing victory on a new glorious 1st of June. Well, we'll have to find out in the next thrilling episode of Jutland. Dun, dun, dun. dun. Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Pete. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or... Visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?